0: Jude is one of the strangest books in the New Testament. Um, I believe, and church history teaches that Jude is the half brother of Jesus um, and a younger brother. And Jude's going to get into some weird things. And and, in just some 20 verses, Jude gets into some weird stuff. And everybody has a weird little brother. um, And Jesus had one too. I'm just kidding. That was maybe inappropriate. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. No, but but Jude gets into some, uh, he's going to talk about angels being in prison. He talks about um, Michael and Satan fighting over the body of, of Jesus. And that's from uh, an, an apocryphal book um, called The Testament of Moses. He's going to get into some um, extra biblical things. It's a really interesting book. And so we're going to take four weeks to look at it. Um, and I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Let's pray. So Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the inspired word of God. Lord, I've felt this week that we need to remind our hearts of a, of a doctrine called the sufficiency of Scripture, that this, this word is not only inspired and inerrant, but it's sufficient for us. It contains everything we need for life and godliness, Lord, that this, this word, is, it's, it's good nutrients for our spiritual souls. So as we come to it this morning, we ask that you would feed us, Holy Spirit, guide us, correct us, lead us. In the beautiful name of Jesus, and I say amen. amen, Amen. Thank you. Four weeks we're going to look at the book of Jude. Hegesippus was an early church historian. We actually don't have any of his writings. Um, all of his work. Uh, was lost with history. But Eusebius, who was a later church historian, did quote him on several occasions. And so when Eusebius quotes the earlier historian, Hegesippus, he kind of preserves for us a few of the early church ideas. And Hegesippus told of the persecution under Domitian. That would have been the the persecution where John uh, the Beloved was Um, cast to the island of Patmos. So this is the late um, first century persecution. It was a really rough persecution for the churches. And Hegesippus told of Jude's grandsons under the persecution of Domitian. Remember now that Herod, before Jesus was born, Herod was very concerned about a Jewish king rising up and revolting against the Roman Empire, so much so that Herod asked that all Jewish children, all Jewish boys who were born, um, be murdered. And remember, we see um, Mary and Joseph taking Jesus into Egypt in the early years of his life. Now, when we get to Domitian, he's going to issue a similar decree. He's very concerned with the Jews having a uh, as son of David, rise up and rebel, rebel against the Roman Empire. And, and so he's going to issue a decree that all of those from the lineage of David be murdered. So let me read to you. Um, again, this is from Eusebius. This is like fourth century, fifth century. But he's quoting Hegesippus, which was a much earlier church historian. And this is what Hegesippus recorded. He said this, when the same Domitian had commanded that the descendants of David should be slain. So again, early 1st century, all the descendants of David should be slain. An ancient tradition says that some of the heretics brought accusation against the descendants of Jude. And said to have been a brother of the Savior according to the flesh. On the ground, they were of the lineage of David and were related to Christ himself. So during this time, some haters of the Christian church "...pointed at the grandsons of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, and said, "'Look, they're descendants of David, too.'" And so uh, the Roman government asked them if they were descendants of David, and they confessed that they were. Then he asked them how much property they had. In other words, are you rich men? Or how much money they owned? And both of of them, the grandsons of Jude, answered, said, "'They only had 9,000 denarii, half of which belonged to each of them.'" And their property did not consist of silver, but they owned a piece of land which contained only 39 plethora and from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. Then they showed their hands... Exhibiting the hardness of their bodies and the callousness produced upon their hands by continuous toil as evidence of their own labor. In other words, the the Roman governor, afraid of an uprise from a son of David, comes to the grandsons of Jude and says, "How much money do you have? How much influence do you have?" And the grandsons of Jude say, "We only have a plot of land and we work it ourselves so that we can support ourselves and pay our taxes. Look at our hands. We're farmers. There. Look. Look at. We're not. We're not. We're not." wealthy men. We're, we're men who work. And so they asked the grandsons of Jude concerning Christ and his kingdom of what sort it was and where where and when it was to appear. And they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly, and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the world when he should come in glory to judge and The quick and the dead, and to give unto everyone according to his work. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, but despising them of no account. In other words, Domitian looked at these men and thought that they were trash. Despising them of no account, he issued a decree to stop persecuting the church. But when they were released, they ruled the churches because they were witnesses for Jesus and were also relatives of the Lord. When they were released, they led the church because they were good witnesses for Jesus. And they were also relatives of the Lord. Now, this is really interesting because I don't know why we don't think about this much. But it's clear in church history and it's clear in the New Testament that the biological family of Jesus participated in leading the church. So even the grandsons of Jude, who would be the great nephews of Jesus, now in their day are leading the charge to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. John's gospel in chapter 7 tells us that during the life of Christ, Jesus' brothers and sisters did not support his ministry. So while Jesus was alive, his brothers and sisters resisted him. Watch this in Mark 6.3. Uh, Jesus' um, enemies say this, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So in Mark 6, we learned that Jesus had four brothers, James, he had um, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. James, uh, these, these are thoroughly Jewish names. James in the Greek is literally the name Jacob. Um, for some reason, when the Greek went to the Latin, there's there's an issue with the translation where by the time we get to the English, he's known as James, but his name was Jacob, and, and Jude, the book of Jude in Greek is literally called Judas. Originally, Jesus, was, Jesus had a brother named Judas. Judas was a very common name. There were like five or six Judases in the New Testament. But the church, as time went on, thought that the book of Judas should not be confused with the, the apostate Judas. And so they shortened Judas's name to Jude just so there, there was no confusion. So we're talking about Judas, the younger brother of Jesus, um, that would be the author of the book of Jude. And so we learned that Jesus had at least four brothers. And then it says, are not his sisters also with us? Sisters in the plural. So he had at least two sisters, biological sisters. Now, but when we turn to Acts 1.14, so after the resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus, we read this in Acts one fourteen: All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So in Acts 1.14, they devote themselves in prayer. They're praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. With the women, those would be the women that lived life uh, and ministered alongside Jesus, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they resisted Jesus during his earthly ministry, but Jesus' biological brothers were in the upper room praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now James, or again Jacob, is listed first after uh listed first as the uh, in the list of Jesus's brothers, so so many assume, and I actually assume that James is the the next um, in line as, as far as order of age. And so Jesus was obviously the eldest brother, and then it's very likely that the next in line would be James. Now, how much of an age gap would have existed between Jesus and James? We don't know. We're not told in history or in the scripture, but it's likely that the age gap could have been very small. And so in that sense, Jesus grows up with a younger brother, multiple younger brothers, but possibly one who was very close in age and would have had a unique perspective and relationship with our Lord. Now, this is interesting. Again, I'm trying to paint a picture for you, um, but... The brothers of Jesus, again, not a single one of them was an apostle. They didn't participate in the earthly ministry of Jesus. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, what we find is that the church is having a debate. In Acts 15, the church is having a debate concerning whether or not Gentiles who, who want to come to the Lord have to be circumcised. So as Gentile believers, do Gentiles need to obey the law of Moses in order to receive Jesus as their Lord? And so there's a, quite a debate about how the Gentiles should be treated. And so Peter speaks up and Peter says, um, you know, this is my perspective and God's given me visions. And I believe that Gentiles should not be circumcised. Gentiles can be saved by faith Alone. And then the scripture says that Paul and Barnabas speak up, which, okay, so this is a really fascinating meeting now. So in Acts 15, we have a church council almost where Peter is addressing the crowd, addressing the church. I believe Gentiles should not be forced to circumcise. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up. That's interesting to think about. Paul and Barnabas stand up and they give their perspective and they argue from their work, their missions, that Gentiles should not be forced to be circumcised. And then the scripture tells us that after Peter spoke, Obviously, the kind of chief apostle, and Paul spoke, the chief apostle to the Gentiles, the scripture says, that then James spoke. And that's, again, interesting to think, because James um, is, is not, at this point, we have no reason to believe that James is in any way in an authoritative position. And when James spoke in Acts chapter 15, he said, essentially, this is my decision, this is my resolve. The Gentiles should not be pressured to be circumcised. They should come to the Lord by faith alone. So Peter makes a case. Paul makes an argument. But it seems that James stands up and kind of has the last final authoritative word. And we know from church history that at this point, James is leading the church in Jerusalem. Now, isn't that fascinating to think that the, lineage, the the biological family of Jesus is having major influence in the early church? So James, obviously, James Jacob wrote the book of James. And Jude, the younger brother of Jesus, introduces himself in this book um, as... It's really fascinating because he doesn't appeal to his biological relationship to the Lord as a means of authority. He says, rather, Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus, that word there, doulos, means... Jude says, I am a slave of Christ and the brother of James... And so it's interesting that he acknowledges, I'm, I'm the brother of James, so I'm in that lineage. But, but he doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus, as if to raise himself up with Jesus. He says, I'm Jesus' slave, servant. Again, Judas would have resisted Jesus during his entire earthly ministry. But after the resurrection, the brothers and sisters of Jesus say, oh no. What, what mama said about him all along was right. So let's turn to Jude, and again, we're going to find the younger brother of Jesus participating in leading churches and writing to churches that I believe he planted. Um, we can make a case from, from 1 Corinthians. Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I have it somewhere in my notes, he says, um, Do not Paul and Barnabas have a right to take wives like the other apostles? Peter, for instance, so Paul's making an argument that the other apostles and leaders in the church have wives and they they receive um, the churches support them financially. And Paul is saying, don't don't me and Barnabas have the same right to take wives and to be supported by the church. But Paul is saying, but but rather Barnabas and I, uh, we, we like to work and to not be a burden on anyone. And that's our perspective. But he says, don't we have the same right as Peter, the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? And so you can make the conclusion that Peter was a traveling apostle, planting churches, as were the other apostles. And also Jesus's brothers, biological half-brothers, were planting churches, declaring the gospel, spreading the kingdom to other regions. And so from there, we can make the assumption that Jude was a church planner, participated, he led churches, he loved the gospel, he proclaimed the, the supremacy of Jesus for the entirety of his life. So now as we turn to, to Jude, we have that in mind. The younger biological brother of Jesus. James definitely was the elder and the lead. Jude is kind of the younger brother growing up, picking his nose, eating his boogers, you know. And, and James and Jesus were saying, stop that. Um, but at this point, he, he, is, he is leading and he loves the church and he serves the church. And so let's read. We're going to start. Again, we're going to take four weeks to cover this book. It really is fascinating. fascinating. Um, and we're going to, this, this morning, we'll just get through verse four, Jude verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, beloved. Jude writes to those who are called, loved, and kept. And so, already we find that that Jude is going to write this uh, short letter to a church who is experiencing an infiltration of false teachers who are promoting false doctrines and who are apostate or... um, They are participating in demonic agendas to destroy the church. And so there's an attack on this church, but Jude's not writing to the apostates. He's not writing to the false teachers. He's writing to those saints, those who have really believed the gospel. And he says, I write to you who are called, who have experienced the genuine call of the Holy Spirit on your life. Those who are loved, those who are in Jesus are really, really loved by the Father and you will be kept and so, in the mind of Jude, there is a divine keeping or protection or preserving by the Spirit of God for the saints who are truly called and loved in the gospel. So, you're facing a danger, but remember that you are called, loved, and kept by Jesus, for Jesus, until the end. Amen. Now, we obviously don't have full perspective, and we can't... Um, kind of sift out all the nuances of the faith. But Jude here says, you are kept, you are preserved. And then later in his epistle, he's going to say, now make sure you keep yourself in the love of God. There's a bit of mystery there for us. But on one hand, we need to trust the keeping power of the Spirit. And on the other hand, we have a personal responsibility to make sure day after day we wake up and have time in the presence of God and the love of our Father. Now, Jude obviously really loves this church that he's writing to. He wants them to recognize their calling, their chosenness, their um, their unique position as being held in the hands of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, no one will pluck you from my hands. Now, he's, so he's writing to a church in danger of apostates, false teachers who have crept in. And the first thing he says is, I was eager to write to you concerning our common salvation. So Jude sits down and he wants to write a letter to a church he loves about the beauty of the gospel. He wants to write about the joy of salvation in Christ Jesus. He wants to write to them about the endless peace that the church experiences because of the kingship of our Lord. Jude's life message is the goodness of Jesus. He he says, I was so eager to write to you about our common salvation, about the beauty of our justification by faith alone, about the totality of our forgiveness, about the completeness, the, the, the finality of our adoption. I long to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you concerning some who have crept in among you with false teaching. I actually want to camp here for a second because I think this is really important for us in the church today. Jude, his life message and his work was to love the church and to proclaim the gospel. And his heart wanted to write about how good Jesus is. He was not looking for a fight. Jude was not contentious. He, he wasn't, the way that I would use this term, he, he wasn't a heresy hunter. He wasn't looking under rocks to see if he could find anyone with false teaching. He, he wanted to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. Now, there's, there's a nuance and a balance here, but I want you guys to hear me for a second. Um, there is a danger... In becoming someone who is always looking for a fight in the church. There's something very seductive about becoming, again, what I would call a heresy hunter about spending all of your time browsing the internet, looking for popular pastors, and hoping to find some area where they've tripped up in their doctrine, and then pointing your finger and saying, Aha! Heretic! Apostate! There's something self-righteous and arrogant about wanting to be the ultimate right one doctrinally and searching. And let me just say, I I, I know I'm young, and so I get that. Um, But I just want to say to the whole of the church... There are many people on the internet today who are literally making a living off of picking through and and nitpicking to death popular preachers in hopes of finding an error. And then they were they're they're doing what we young people would call clickbait. They're titling things, this preacher, total apostate. And then many of us are falling into the trap. We're clicking, we're jumping on board, we're throwing stones at people we don't know. And 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 sometimes those people are heretics, but sometimes those people, forgive me for saying this, but this is reality, sometimes those people are just dumb. I know that I'm not allowed to say this, but just because someone has a microphone and leads a church does not make them intelligent. Doesn't make me intelligent. You you need to be good Bereans. And so there are many men and women who lead who have I think are genuine brothers and sisters in the faith they love the lord they are just wrong about certain aspects of their doctrine they are not well taught sometimes they're just dumb and it's it's not right for you to spend all of your time searching them out in hope of pointing a finger and calling them a heretic. Just because someone's wrong does not make them a false teacher. Those are two distinct categories. Okay, and part of logic and argumentation is you need to understand categories. And just because someone teaches something wrongly does not make them a false teacher. You need to understand what what defines, what, what constitutes false teaching. False teaching um, it participates in a demonic agenda to undercut what Jude calls here the faith that was once in all once and for all delivered to the saints and so if someone teaches that Jesus is not God, that individual is a heretic. if someone teaches that um, if someone teaches that the the, the rapture will happen mid tribulation in three and a half years. I think that's wrong. That's not heretical. There's, that is not coming against the plain teaching of the faith. That's a, that's a misinterpretation. There's got to be enough brotherly love and graciousness in the church to hear someone stumble in their hermeneutic or in their interpretation of Scripture to say, ah, I don't think that's quite right, to go to a brother or sister, explain why you think they're not right, and if they still disagree with you, whatever. The, the end of the gospel and the end of the church it cannot be um, this kind of uh, intellectual bullying that takes place on the basis of one interpretation. Now, for me... Sorry, sorry, I'm talking because I think this matters. For me, I believe that the gifts... I believe dogmatically that the gifts of the Spirit are in play today. There's nowhere in the New Testament that teaches that the gifts of the Spirit stopped. I believe dogmatically that the gifts of the Spirit are in play. People who teach the gifts of the Spirit ceased, typically participate in a system of doctrine called dispensationalism. The system of doctrine is not heretical. It's a system that I think is wrong. Some of the greatest Bible teachers and men and women of God today believe that system of doctrine. I think it's dumb. But that does not make them heretical or wrong. I think, so on one hand, I'm saying dogmatically, I believe the gifts of the Spirit are in play. On the other hand, I would say, I think dogmatically, that charismatics have often, have awful end times beliefs. I think our eschatology is garbage. I think you get your eschatology from the newspaper rather than getting it from the scripture. We look at the newspaper saying, oh, what happened in Israel today? This is the, and you're, you're not actually trying to develop your beliefs from Scripture. You're trying to develop your beliefs from what Fox News says. And, and that's not biblical. So um, as someone who loves the charismatic church, I'm over here going, dumb. Um, <laughs> I'm, be, I'm, I'm being silly because I'm trying to make this lighthearted. But it's but perfectly healthy as brothers and sisters in the faith to at times go, ah, that ain't right. Or that's silly, or that's not well thought through. But we need to define our categories, okay? There are people who are, who are wrong in certain aspects of doctrine. And I actually believe that there's not an individual in this room who is totally accurate on every matter of doctrine. I know that there's somewhere where I'm still stumbling, where I'm still wrong. So I don't want to be so arrogant as to say, I am the ultimate right one. And everyone needs to listen to me. I want to recognize that on matters of secondary doctrine, I might not always be right and have enough grace to, to love and bless and to say, I will say about many um, famous pastors, megachurch pastors, authors, I will say about many, I think their doctrine is not great. I don't necessarily enjoy their ministry. But they're not heretics. And if you're unwilling to say that, I'm I'm afraid you've been seduced by the enemy and you what happens is the church can actually begin to participate in accusation and the enemy is the accuser of the church and so sometimes again there may be a pastor online who's just a little bit wrong and not thinking things through well but all of a sudden you're participating in condemnation you're he's going to hell he's a heretic he's an apostate and i i think that's seductive is that okay for me to say You guys know I really don't care. I'm going to say what I think. Um, So I I want to warn us of that. I want to warn you of becoming heresy hunters, participating in clickbait on YouTube, trying to scour every ministry to find... Many times, many times pastors just have a slip of the tongue. If you hold a microphone for long enough, you get your words crossed up. And there have been times where... So a, a very historic orthodox way to speak of the Trinity is to say, we believe our God is one being and three persons. That is historic orthodoxy. There are times in my ministry where I've slipped and said, I believe there is one person and three beings. And I don't believe that that's wrong. I just had a slip of the tongue in the moment. And so I need to be humble enough to apologize and say, Hey, I'm sorry that my brain turned off there. Um, You know, the phrase I was thinking, I was trying, how do you get through that? Um, but we don't want to be so arrogant as to say, aha, I got him. And if you're always looking to get somebody, there's, there's, there's an issue. Okay, so on one hand, Jude's saying, I didn't actually want to write to you about this. I wanted to write to you about the beauty of our redemption and salvation in Jesus. But I found it necessary. So from here, many scholars and commentators have begun to ponder what happened in the life of Jude or Judas as he began to write this letter. Did he sit down and begin to write about the beauty of salvation and then feel or sense the Holy Spirit beginning to convict him that he needed to write to warn the church? It's very likely that as he sat down to write, he experienced in prayer a a warning, a prophetic warning, and he began to write to warn the church. Or did someone bring news? Had he begun to write a letter to the church and then he heard through a messenger that the church was experiencing false teaching? Either way, Jude wasn't excited or foaming at the mouth, ready to fight. He was not a contentious person, but he was willing to contend. And as a church, you've got to find this nuance. We don't want to be contentious people looking at every church in the region trying to find some area of doctrine where they slip so that we can point our fingers and say, aha, that's not godly. But we must also be willing to contend at times when we find an infiltration of false doctrine in our midst. He said, I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend. That Greek word there, contend, it just means fight. For you to stand up and fight. And so... He says, this is not a time for you to be passive or necessarily even to be peacemakers. This is a time for you to contend, to fight, to preserve the faith that was once once and for all delivered. He's going to write one of the most pointed, encouragements, arguments to resist false teachers that we have in the New Testament. But again, he's not necessarily... Excited about this. He says it's not thrilling, but it is necessary. Now I'm skipping eight pages because Seth said, I saw your notes this week and you have a book, so you're going to need to cut it back. So I'm skipped about six pages of the book for you, okay? So Jude says, there are some who have slipped in among you unnoticed. Unnoticed. There are some who have slipped in among you unnoticed. It's time for you to contend. We want to be sure, guys, that we're discerning enough to to catch if there are people who slip in amidst the saints with agendas. The enemy will use people to come in with false doctrine and false teaching and to apply pressure to try to attempt the church to abandon what is called the faith. Okay, so if we're talking about categories, everyone say categories. There are categories between false teacher and wrong. Those are two distinct categories. And then Jude wants you to understand the category, which is called the faith. The faith consists of not secondary peripheral doctrines, like when you believe the rapture is, The faith consists of those unique core doctrines that make up Christianity. So in Christianity, there is room to have debate and dissension and divide over peripheral doctrines. But there is never room to debate, divide over the faith. There are certain doctrines that make up the faith. Now, the faith is a phrase that means those core doctrines 2 Corinthians 13:5 test yourselves to see if you are in the faith not not test yourself to see if you have faith right he's not saying here contend for your faith contend to be a person of belief he's not he's not a name and claim it preacher stir up your belief so you can have more that's not what he's saying he's asking you to contend for the certain set of doctrines that make up the so there in First, Second Corinthians, Paul says, "Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith." Second Timothy four seven, Paul says, "I have kept the faith." Titus one thirteen, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So there is a, a, a category, a box that exists in the Scriptures that makes up what Paul calls and Jude calls here the faith. The faith that was once and all, for all delivered to the, to the saints. So, listen closely. The faith, these certain doctrines that make up Christianity, were once and for all delivered to the church. So, the faith must be the historic doctrines that came from apostolic figures. Okay? The faith is historic. So in other words, if there is an element of doctrine that, like for instance, um, oh, can I step on toes? Oh, yeah, today's the day. It's a good day to do it. Here we are. Um, For instance, there is really no one in history. um, Brother Don would be real excited about me saying this. There is really no one in history before the year around 1830 who who believed or taught a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, that began in about the year 1830, and then um, it really picked up with what's called the Schofield Study Bible, taught it there, and then certain denominations, like the Assembly of God, where I was trained, um, all the pastors had to teach a preacher of rapture, if you didn't, uh, you couldn't be ordained, and and then what really was the straw on the camel back was uh, the late, great planet Earth, and then all of you guys watched the Left Behind movies, and you thought that you should get your doctrine from a movie, and uh, or the book, whatever, and and. So, so, I, I say all that to say, um, I think I have the liberty to say that. I'm, I'm not a pre-tribulational rapture guy. That really changes the way that I view the end times. Um, no one in the early church believed or taught a pre-tribulational rapture, but many in this hour will say, if you don't believe a pre-tribulational rapture, then you're not a real Christian. Pre-tribulational rapture, it does not, because it is not a historic foundational part of the, it does, it, that, that doctrine does not exist in the box, in the category called the faith. So there's room for disagreement there. The doctrines that make up the box called the faith are primarily the deity of Christ, the Trinity. I would make the case plainly that the inerrancy of the scripture. So any church who teaches that the Bible is not from God or the Bible is not inerrant or inspired, I I would say that they have departed from the faith. Jesus believed the Bible was true. He quoted it. He talked about Adam and Eve as literal historical figures. Um, all of the apostles, Paul built all of his doctrine from scripture. The the early church believed the Bible was true, period. And so the fact that in the modern era, particularly uh, Germany really spun that one, um, in the 17-1800s, began to teach that maybe the Bible is not really that true. um, I think that's a departure from the faith. The faith is uh, the proclamation that salvation is by Jesus alone and not by works. The, the faith is believing in the resurrection of Christ. There are many churches in America today who would say, we think Jesus is great. We don't really know if he raised from the dead. If you don't believe plainly in the resurrection of Christ, you have departed from the faith and you are participating in an apostate false teaching. The faith believes in the ascension of Christ, the second coming of Christ. How that second coming shakes out is not a matter of the faith, but everyone in the faith believes that Jesus Christ is coming back to redeem the heavens and the earth. So there, there are matters, there are doctrines that have to sit in the pile called the faith, and those matters we must be willing to fight about. But our job is not to be contentious and look all over the internet in hopes of finding someone tangled up in these matters. Um, there is a sense in which we should be concerned with our house, and I'm not responsible necessarily for what's happening you know, at any other church on this island or in Bluffton. I'm responsible for what takes place here. So there's a sense in which we should be very concerned with that. And so Jude says, you need to get ready to contend, and then he uses the category, for the faith that is historic, that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Does that make sense? Okay, I want to take about five minutes and now explain to you what was the doctrinal error that Jude was writing against. Um, There's some debate on this, but but I think scholars are Pretty much in large agreement about what the text is saying. Um, Jude says that there are some who have slipped in the church, and they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. What does that mean? They, there are some who are teaching that because of grace, you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. They are teaching that because of grace. You can do whatever you want with your money. These are the things Jude's really going to hit on. He's going to hit on sexuality. He's going to hit on finances. He's saying that some are saying, hey, it's really all just about grace. And so you do whatever you want to do. You live however you want to live. And Jude calls that perverting the grace of God. So now this is actually fascinating because Jude believes that one of the matters of historic faith is this. Christianity is not antinomian. Everyone say antinomian. That means Christianity is not lawlessness. The Old Testament reams against lawlessness. Paul says in the last days, there will be some who live lawless. Christianity is not a faith that says because of grace, you get to do whatever you want now. And if anyone ever corrects you, then you 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 should call them religious. Okay, but that is largely happening in the Western church today. It has happened. I actually think that this movement is is weaning off. But there was a, a strong movement, particularly 10 years ago or so, of sometimes what's called hyper grace or cheap grace or greasy grace. Um, and, and these teachings, you want me to keep going? Cause I probably could. Um, <laughs> and people in the hyper grace camp, cheap grace camp will say things like, There's no such thing as hyper grace. Grace can't be hyper. The grace of God is all expansive. And I would say, like, yes, we could never overemphasize the grace of God for us. It's beautiful and wonderful. But Jude says you can pervert it. Okay, so Paul says in Romans 6, what then? He's talking about the gospel. What then? Should we continue in sin? And then he says, of course not. How can those who are dead to sin continue to live in it? And so Christianity is not a religion which says because of grace you can particular again I'm being particular with the text Judas saying because of grace you can just sleep with whoever christianity is a religion it is a faith understand that religion's not always a negative word we've really made that word negative but but james says true religion is Loving and caring for the orphan and widow and not being perverted by the grace of God. And so when I use the word religion, I'm not using it in a negative context. Christianity is a historic faith or religion that teaches that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Again, Jude does not call himself a brother of Jesus. He calls himself the slave of Jesus. And then he says, I'm writing to you because there are some in your church who are teaching that it doesn't matter how you live because of grace. And I call that a perversion and a direct violation of the historic faith That's apostate. And so we need to be really careful and we need to be able to articulate that that grace cleanses us of past sin. Grace will cleanse us of future sin, but it does not excuse us to live in sin. It does not promote sinful lifestyles. Grace always says, get up, dust yourself off, and get back to obeying Jesus. And so anyone who teaches you that so the teaching that go around um, that went around really common was um, all of your past and future sins are forgiven because of the cross. There is no need for Christians to ever repent again. That that was something that was said in the hyper grace movement a lot five years ago, ten years ago. Um, the the atonement for your past and future sins is provided on the cross of Calvary. It is there. There is grace available. Um, but there when when we sin as Christians. You fall into sexual sin. You get tangled up in a financial thing. The the scripture plainly teaches that you should confess your sin to your brother, that you may be healed. The scripture plainly teaches that we still need to, when we grieve the spirit, we should repent of our sin, ask for forgiveness, and get back on the donkey. Get back up and get back to obeying Jesus. Jude teaches plainly that the lordship of Christ matters. That anyone who calls himself a Christian yet lives a lifestyle that says, I really am going to do what I want. Again, particularly sexually. I'm going to do whatever I want sexually. I'm covered by the blood, right? I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want. Anyone who lives that way, Jude says, they're not a Christian. They're apostate. And so we want to be aware of that. We want to be aware of the temptation to slide into that teaching. Because many times as the enemy comes to tempt you with sin right? The temptation usually goes, God's going to forgive you. Just one time, just do it. There's, there's grace. And the truth of the matter is that there, there is grace, but grace is not a license to live in sin. Is, does that make sense? And, that, and that's where Jude's going to really, really beat home here. All right, the book's done. <laughs> so what we found in Jude today is, Seth, worship team, come for me. We'll get ready to close. What we found in the, in the book today is, one, Jude says, I wanted to write to you about, about grace and about the gospel and about the beauty of salvation. Um, in other words, I am not excited. I'm not, I'm not someone who foams at the mouth and is looking for a fight all the time. The gospel says, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. There's a, there's a lot of validity to being a person who listens, who reasons, who has conversations, who's not always looking for a fight. I want to encourage you to get off the clickbait, to not be a heresy hunter, to not spit on people who may just be dumb or wrong. Okay? If, um, sometimes one of the best things you can do is when, when a preacher's stumbling and mumbling and saying things that don't really make sense, is to go through their actual doctrinal statement of faith, where they've sat down and tried to articulate what they believe and many times you'll find that they are orthodox in their beliefs they're just stumbling and mumbling and confused behind a pulpit um, we don't want to be heresy hunters but we do want to be willing and ready to fight not over secondary matters but over those matters which make up the faith and are historic that's what you'd say you need to fight to defend the, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. You need to be willing to fight to contend for historic Orthodox Christianity. That means that people in our body are allowed, are given permission to have different views concerning Soteriology, or the order of salvation, right? Like you can be someone who leans towards Calvinism and still worship with us, and that's okay. Um, you can be someone who leans towards Arminianism, uh, and, and that's okay, that's fine. That's not a matter of the faith, that's a matter of interpretation. Totally good to not, not always be in perfect alignment there. We honor each other, we listen. You cannot be a person who teaches in our church that, that Christians can have sex with whoever, whenever they want. That is not a matter of historic faith. Paul teaches plainly, Jesus teaches plainly, that that sexual intercourse should take place between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. That is a matter of historic faith. And so we, we need to be able to understand categories. Everyone say categories. And the category of the faith, historic Christianity, we want to be willing to defend, to fight for. Which means we need to know it right? You can't defend historic Christianity if you don't know historic Christianity. And so we want to be ready. Um, always aware. Did you, did you catch when Paul said, there are some who have slipped in among you who were designated for this work. Always aware that the enemy is, is intends to pollute the church through slipping in false teachers. We got to be aware of that. That's not, that's not a fun part of the faith. I don't particularly enjoy fighting with anybody, um, but I must be willing to fight to make sure my kids hear the true gospel, that my family hear, that you guys, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, hear the true gospel preached. It really matters. It mattered to Jude. uh, mattered to Jude. If you'd stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close. Team, you guys want to get in place first? Let's let's let me say this the historic faith has taught that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, which means that if you have lived in sin, you've lived in sexual sin, or again, financial sin, bitterness, that your sin does not keep you out of the kingdom. What the gospel teaches is that Jesus on the cross was whipped, pierced, bled out. For your forgiveness. So the punishment that humanity deserves, that I deserve, the punishment that you deserve because of our sin was paid for. The punishment was absorbed on the back of Jesus. Jesus died to pay for your sins, to offer forgiveness. And so if you're here this morning and you say, I'm not a Christian, um, the good news is that the gospel teaches that your past sins really don't matter today. If you'd come and confess Jesus as Lord, if you would come and pray a prayer and say, say, God, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I want, to, I want to follow him, that your sins would be wiped away, totally eradicated, done away with, and that you could be a son or daughter of God today, not because of what you've done in the past or didn't do, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. So there's an offer this morning. There's an invitation to become a son or daughter of God, no matter what you've come from, no matter how gross or mischievous your past life is, but totally because of what Jesus did. That's the grace. There's newness of life because of Jesus. That's the grace offered today. If that's you, as we open the altars, I want to ask you to come. If you maybe want to pray with one of our prayer ministers, kneel. we can lead you through a prayer. You can know today that you belong to Jesus. Two, there were some words that came forward today. One in particular that um, there's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. There was a word that some here um, you felt hopeless in the past, but today the Holy Spirit's saying, I wanna release hope in your life again, that today there's hope in the gospel, there's hope in the power and the presence of the kingdom. Um, and if that's you, if you would, maybe I don't know the uniqueness of your situation, but if you would just say, man, I just felt hopeless, we wanna ask you to come, and we wanna believe that God's gonna infuse your spirit with divine hope today. Second, there there was a word that there are some here and you felt really I'm um, tired and pressed, and like there's something in your life that's crushing you, and you're praying and believing. Please, God, bring breakthrough. Please, God, um, deliver me from this circumstance. And and we we believe that today, um, someone needs to partner with you in prayer. That you need to come. Let someone stand with you, or two or more are gathered. Uh, two send in the flight, a thousand. Um, the the concept of partnering with someone in prayer. If if that's you, if you just feel crushed and you need breakthrough, I want to ask you to come and we want to pray for you and believe for healing today, deliverance today. If you're sick in your body at all, please come, let us pray for you. So the altars are open. We're going to sing for just another moment, but we want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and minister to any uh, who need ministry today. Worship your majesty. If you're hopeless today, come. If you need Jesus today, come. Worship your holy. For that I am is yours Worship your majesty Worship your hope
1: Worship
0: Your holy name Jesus my name This morning, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would teach us from your word to be people who preserve the historic faith, that we be people who are pure in, in life and in doctrine, that our children would hear the pure gospel of Christ preach. our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and Lord, we ask today that we would be a people of great hope, that we would hold to the blessed hope, that we would be waiting with anticipation the return of Christ Jesus the day when all things are made right. And we bless your holy name. We love you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. We give you our heart and our life. We love you, sweet Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. And let every saint say amen. Amen, amen. All right, we love you. We pray you have a wonderful day.